Well, welcome to the podcast. We've got Kelly D in the house. Again. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. Well, we like Kelly because she's got a lot of time. She's a she's a mother of children. She's gone for a hell of a lot in her in her life and, and a hell of a lot in her recovery. And you know, I've all been thinking for a long time that I wanted to sort of start a conversation on kind of what comes after recovery because a lot of people do focus on you know stop taking drugs stop drinking and of course when you're stuck in that place that's the most in important part of the journey it appears that but but you know you know we could stop everyone in england drinking and taking drugs in the next two weeks but they ain't going to stay stopped and so how do you stay stopped and what does it take and what do you do i think is really uh, the important thing so we're open to explore that a little bit, and, uh, and Kelly's got a, a fantastic story and a lot of wealth and knowledge about that. But what, what, what I find myself when I talk to people to try and explain that to them that you know that life's difficult for a start. Find people in recovery kind of struggle with that concept that you know they often think because they're struggling that there's something's going wrong. And uh, which again can can put them in a bit of a disadvantage, and in, instead of realizing that a lot of what feels like is going wrong is actually going right, and that's how it feels to grow and develop. But but there's a bit in the AA book that I use quite a lot that I read to people, and try and get them to understand because I think it it brings the mind to a very important part of recovery, and I think even the pro twelve step program along with other things, can get a bit of a bad rap because I don't think people fully realise the potential of it for human development, that this really is not a not drinking and not taking drugs programme. It's about how do I learn to develop and live. And I, without drugs and alcohol, which I call crossing the bridge, that you cross that bridge from being somebody that's completely consumed in your addiction to stopping the addiction and then allowing the brain to start reforming new pathways to be able to live successfully in the world without drugs and alcohol and, and that's quite a you know that's quite a bridge to cross um but knowing that you have to cross the bridge could be very helpful to people i found so not trying to make it sound terrible or worse for people just trying to be realistic but <clears throat> in the aa book just before you read it just be aware that the tapping on the table yeah, just keep it real, mate. Keep it real. <laughs> he says the alcoholic. He says the alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken, sweet relationships are dead, affections have been uprooted, selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He's like the farmer who comes up out of the cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Oh, hang on a minute, I like to do my accent on this. I don't see anything wrong here, Ma. Any grand winds that blowing. That's the way I presume they would have said that. <laughs> he says, and I think this is the important bit. It's like, so again, if you picture that, that, you know, obviously the... Um, the tornado is the damage caused by the person with addiction and they've stopped drinking which is the wind not blowing 
but then they're not acknowledging the damage that, that they've done. There can be lots of reasons for that. People can feel quite guilty, ashamed, closed down, you know, or just completely selfish that they don't really consider other people. But again, I think that's part of the mental illness that often people with addiction suffer, that they um, appear very selfish because they are because of this problem. It says, yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fit the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyse the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticise them. And then it goes on, but the bit I wanted to draw out there, Kelly, was, you know, um, what was it like for you when the wind stopped blowing and maybe the, you know, that realisation of the reconstruction that you had to do, because again, even having all your children taken off of you, that's, that must have been like a bone-crushing realisation. And then I think from the very beginning, you did have that goal that you're going to get them back mm. as being the centre of your um, recovery. So I guess if you could sort of take us back to the beginning of, of you know, when you're using come to an end and then sort of the devastation and... How long has it you've been in recovery now? Nine years in July. So you've had nine years of literal sort of reconstruction. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, I think when you just read that, I was drawn to, it says, as we now see it. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really mm. important point because without following the process of the 12 steps, I don't think I would have been had the ability to see what I'd done. I think that's an important part is that the 12 step process gives you the opportunity to look at your part what what do you think for you was what was blocking you seeing what you'd actually sort of how you ended up where you ended up or you know what would you think changed your mind that I can't I don't know what changed my mind I think that it was just following that process of the steps and being in again back to the environment that I was in when I got the chance to do those steps was I'm in a I was in an environment where I was accepted as I was so for the first time I'm around a, a bunch of people that wanted to see me get better you know loved me and supported me and took me as I was and addict stuff with chronic self-worth I absolutely hated myself and I think you mentioned about the guilt and shame that was massive what I what I'd done you know builds what you do to one single person if you can imagine like you say roaring through the lives of others like a tornado I caused a lot of damage so each each person I harmed brings more shame more guilt you know so I'm carrying all of that stuff and I have no idea who I am what I'm doing how I've got in this mess absolutely distraught when I landed in rehab that the battle was over, let's say, the fight, you know, it was it was over and my kids were removed because I've said it in my podcast before that I was holding on to them. If I've got my kids, I'm all right. You know, the most selfish thing I could have done and dragged them through the, through the uh, carnage. Um, so I don't know. All I know is that process opened my mind, helped me see my part and actually acknowledge what I'd, I'd done and ma and that became a drive to make those changes so I was in an arena where it was safe to do that 
and for people to be able to say let's you know like the layout of the brain is that it's very we're very selfish self-centered it's all about me poor me you know I had people encouraging me to step out of that self-pity mode and look come on let's take some responsibility and do something about this but I couldn't take some responsibility until I owned what I'd done Mm. if that makes sense no I I think that's right I mean I think there's a kind of a rule that runs through everything is that you can't change what you don't accept absolutely yeah yeah that's that's so true um so I had to take a long hard look at myself I couldn't blame the world and the people in it anymore as it tells you in the book it's like look let's have a look at what you've done um and that was really painful really Mm. painful because to accept that I'd let my children down I'd failed as a mum I'd failed as a human being, really. Yeah, because I just think, as you were saying that, and again, because I was probably there at that point in your life as well, and, and seeing a lot of other people in that place, is that that you have no real power. There was people running your life for you, weren't there at the time? What, when I came into yeah. treatment? Absolutely. That you were under, you know, you had no home, no job, no anything really, and people were telling you what to do you there was a lot of carrots being dangled in front of yeah. you yeah and if you didn't follow their um what they wanted then it was going to just get worse for you mm. so you're in a very difficult place for a human being as well because you, you've lost your own you've lost your whole life really yeah you? yeah I, I was it was that absolutely broken <clears throat> and lost broken yeah. and lost that's the only way to describe i had nothing really um well, I think you had a choice, isn't it? I guess you've got a choice to either start moving in what other people thought was the right direction or completely abandon any hope of getting your children back and carrying on down the path of destruction. Mm. But there wasn't... It was only, like they say, didn't they? Your choice was a, um, a sort of a spiritual life or an addict death. That, that You really only had the two choices at that point. And I only knew the addict death. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I only yeah. knew the addict lifestyle and... It seemed easier at points. There was points when I thought, I'm just going to go. I don't want to do it. I didn't want to face what I'd done. I didn't want to face myself. I didn't... It looked easier at points to leg it. But I had nowhere to go. That's the truth. But I just wanted to run from what... You know, what I know now is I was just running from me because wherever I go, is I'm taking the problem with me. So that was really Mm. profound when I was told that. It's like, you know, all the geographicals people do, the relationships that they change, the circumstances they change to learn that I was the problem and taking away the drugs wasn't going to make everything better. That was just the beginning. And, and you obviously think detoxing for, you know, for, for an addict is the hardest part and that's the most difficult bit and that's the easiest bit. But you don't see that till further on down the line. That Actually, that's the easiest bit, just getting that out of your system. And then to learn that now we're going to deal with the problem, now the drugs are removed, it was like, well... The drugs were the problem. No, you're the problem. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. You know, it's there was so much to learn, but there was just something in me that that just and I think the kids, you know, I, I wanted to be in my heart, I wanted to be everything those kids deserved. There was yeah, something in just my heart. Stop taking drugs wasn't enough, was it? Not a chance. Not a chance. No, there was a lot that had to be put right. Um and and as I say, somewhere in my heart I just wanted to be a good mum, and I needed to learn how to do that. And I guess in retrospect, from that point to... Because, again, you, there was no quick route for you to get your children back. 
the best you could hope for was living close to them. Um, just uh, we, we talk through it, but so how many years from that moment till you actually got your children back? So I used to get so annoyed. Addicts are very impulsive, and it's like to where you got full, yeah full custody of all of them uh, again. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking that might be a good place to sort of almost start. Yeah. Because that's how long the journey was. And okay. all that you had to do in between that was what brought that. To, it just gives an idea. That's the ladder you had to climb. Took about... About five years. So you had five years of reconstruction Absolutely. and hard work. Yeah. And showing that you're a responsible yeah. they, parent it, again. It was a staggered return as well. And at the time, yeah. you know, as I said, addicts are really impulsive. And I wanted it all now and, and a... Um, lovely person in my life used to say it's a process just follow the process you know and I was like I want it back on you know and it was like still my needs and wants um, but I did follow the process and it did it, it's a natural process I used to be told and it did all happen because I carried on doing the right thing mm. but my children were returned to me it was a staggered return um, the eldest first then the next one and then the next one but my son what, came what kind back of finally. led to that though? What did you have to get in place from? So you've so let's say you've left the rehab, so you've started your journey. I think did you go into like a sheltered housing? I or? did supported living. Yeah. yeah, with another girl that I did the program with, we went into supported living. Um, I just stuck really close to the people that um, had what I would call a good recovery. So were stable in their lives, had good relationships were helping other people, were following the programme. I just stuck really close because I didn't know how to do life. Um, I had some idea from the, my background, um, you know, how a life should be, but yeah, I didn't come, know how to... you didn't come from... You come from sort of a pretty, would you say, middle-class family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd seen how life should be, but to me, in my addict madness, it was all boring. <laughs> and I love I love that today. Simple, um, but yeah, that's that. So I'd seen that growing up. I'd seen that through my addiction, and and I'm very grateful to have had that in my life for my children. You had sisters as well that were pretty much on uh, the journey of life, having children, getting married, in probably more along what would be considered the right way. Yeah. So you had that mirroring to you as well yeah right? absolutely yeah so i got you, to see you that you knew what what they were doing was probably preferable to what you was doing definitely <laughs> <laughs> they make it worse don't they? <laughs> yeah and that was it it was like i'm the black sheep and you know everyone else is getting on with their lives and it i just again another saying in the book and beating myself over the head with a hammer when i already had a headache i just you know i was just my own worst enemy at feeling sorry for myself and how bad my life was and you know I'm the black sheep and but I wasn't prepared to do anything about that mm. to make any changes I just sat in that that was an excuse for me to carry on doing what I was doing um and bring bring shame on the family yeah so you had an education so you weren't yeah. like uneducated you had skills you, you could work yeah I did I had I got 11 GCSEs at school yeah. um I was a little bit wayward at school but I did get through I got 11 GCSEs and went off to college and then it was while at college um, that I kind of like completely was like, this is too much hard work. I'd started to go off the track slightly and was trying to come back on it and then going off it. And, and at, at college, I found pubs and, and I was off because off, you didn't have to be at college at school. You had to be there. Mm. Um, 
and I tried to sky of school once and I got caught so I wasn't very good at that mm. so at college you could go if you wanted to and you didn't have to so I was like well I don't want to then you know I had that bit of a that bit of an attitude by then and so I didn't go and then it went downhill from there yeah so so you're in your little um I remember a bit of a courtyard was it a room was it or was it a shared house you're in yeah, no, it was a no, it was just like a sh- it was a shared, it was a flat. So you went down some stairs. And there was two rooms. And we had our own little kitchen and a yeah. living room, and so it was it was a, yeah, supported housing. And so then, what was you doing sort of on a daily basis when you were in that? So I was still able to come and work up at the rehab. So I stuck close. There was a girl that was <clears> a few <throat> years in front of me, and in in early recovery, I remember my dramatic self you know having a meltdown because she was having a visit with her kids and oh poor me and I've lost my kids and she gets to see her you know you know poor me poor me and she'd worked hard to a bit of do that and she became sort of I stuck very close to her because her kids were similar ages we're very good friends today um and I kind of hung out with her did some work with her in the rehab um spent a lot of time with my flatmate going to the meetings doing everything that was suggested that I should do and at the mm. same time I by this point, having gone through the steps, I knew the importance of starting to make the amends to everybody in my life, and I was willing to do that. Would you say, just in that situation that you're in, there's obviously people that that had the sort of authority over your children, was it social services and family, and so yeah. they were also looking at you, and I guess part of your journey was kind of trying to manipulate them and keep them happy... Yeah. Was that still happening then, do you think, to a degree or...? Do you know what? This is the... Because f- when we went to court um, for the children to be removed, I was already in rehab. So in my mind, it was going to be great and I was in rehab and they were going to let me have the children and, you know, my plans and designs that had gone wrong for all those years, but this time they were going to work. Um, and it didn't go like that. And they'd uh, there was a letter that was you know given to the judge to say that my 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 history was so entrenched that they ha- had to be removed until until they were eighteen. There was no way, so even though you was a write off, write off. Social services wrote me off. So and, there was no pathway back. And and so what was the the court order while I was in rehab was um, a guardianship over the children until they're eighteen, so they're mm. not to be in my care. Um, but I remember in that course court case, I'd learned a lot about honesty in rehab and being honest, whatever, you know, whatever is, you know, owning up to what I'd done. And I went into that courtroom and I remember again, someone very close to me saying, she's in recovery, you know, come before me. And she said, you've just got to put your hands up. Because I was like, well, I didn't do that. And it wasn't that bad. And I was trying to justify it and make excuses. And she said, you've just got to put your hand up because everything they've said in that letter, you know, emotionally neglecting your children, all the things that they were accusing me of, it was all right. So for the first time, I walked into that courtroom with my hands in my air and I said, you're right, I failed yeah, my children. I guess that's kind of like, again, you saying that, it's, that's kind of like taking responsibility, but that's also the first step in becoming responsible as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, massively. Owning, owning it. Yeah. You know, have, accepting the damage as well. Because that's hard for a mum to, you know... But again, that you can't change what you don't accept. No. So accepting the damage, then you can start yeah. the reconstruction. And I think that a lot of parents in... It's, it's so hard. I was thinking this on the drive over. It's so many people with addiction issues are so frightened to own it. 
so frightened to... I think society doesn't always help, though, no. does it? It does make it like, you know, even me growing up, the social services, if they found out what you're doing, they took your children off you. And, um, it seems like that's reversed now almost. <laughs> but, but there is that fear that, you know, that these people do it, so people tend to... To not say anything, yeah, and, and it gets clamp it down. It but. gets hidden a lot, so it, it is difficult, especially when you're in a position you're in that you're desperately trying, but you're just sinking and failing, mm. and then you be in your mind is, I guess, there's always that. But I'll do better tomorrow. I'll, I'll do better, and give me one more chance. Give me one more chance, and give me one more chance. But what I didn't realise was I was fighting <clears> something that. You know, a battle I was never going to win on my own. And I didn't mm. know that. So I was doing my best at the time. But mm. Which again, I think is that when you're in that position, you're trying to hide from everybody. Mm. But when you put your hands up and get honest, then you're allowed to help. Yeah. To start helping. And I was so angry at social services. So mm. angry. And, you know, through a step four and five process of looking at those resentments properly, is it's like... They were just doing their job and trying to protect my children from me and they needed protecting because mm. they really, you know, they really did get dragged through the dirt with me because, and I couldn't see that, what I was doing. I, I, the, I was deluded and thinking that, you know, they were protected from it and it wasn't that bad and all those things we tell ourselves to keep doing what we're doing and get away with it. It was, you know, I played it all down and to actually look at the damage and, and go, wow, you know, that is me. That is what I've done. I guess just, but you also think that might have been an element of for you. I mean, you did have um, references, frames of reference in your family and your sisters, but maybe not everybody has that. That that may be normal for them, but was there an element of that for you also that that was just normal for you the way you were living? What the the just the craziness of it all. You know, what I was sort of saying is for some people that have been brought up in them kind of families where they have no reference. One of the things that was amazing for me was when I was 25, um, I, I kind of come to this conclusion that I was struggling and I, I was probably trying to tell people there's something wrong, but people were always saying, that's just life, that's just life, that's just life. And so you sort of, I sort of come to this conclusion that that life was shit <laughs> because I had no reference. And then I think one of the great things is when I went to Canada on that island at 25 and I was then telling somebody that's just life and they sort of said, no, it's not. That's your life and you can change it if, again, if you take responsibility. So just wondering, even though I'm just trying to sort of understand or help people understand the mind of an addict, that even though you had frames of reference you could quite clearly see what you was doing was not as good as what they were doing but was there still an element in you do you think that but that was normal for you yeah that that you couldn't really see what they were saying because that was normal for you even though they're saying it's wrong and you shouldn't be doing it but it's like well, that's kind of why i am i'd done it for so many years yeah. it, prior to having my children so I was blessed to have, like you say, the references and, you know, to know how to keep a tidy home and to, well, not always tidy, but, you know, generally how to look after a home and to clothe my children and certain things that I learned from the way I was brought up. 
I, I tried my best to use, but the drama, the police at the house, the relationships, the people in and out of my life, the visits to prison, all of that stuff wasn't normal for children, but it was normal for me, so it became normal for the children. Yeah. So, you know, now I can look back and think, absolute madness. But at the time, it was just, you know, I was doing my best. And because they went to school, because there was something to eat in the cupboards, because there was some clothes, you know, I was like, well, I'm doing okay. It's not that bad. You know, I couldn't see everything else other than that. They, you know, and even all of their basic needs weren't met. Buying, you know, one pound macaroni microwave meals from Iceland because I want to use the money to score isn't normal. Well, you like that. There you go, have that, you know. So that, but in my mind... No, but it becomes normalised. Yeah. And for the children. Yeah. That, that's what I found in my own life, that yeah. the dysfunction sort of become normal and the more functional stuff was not normal. No. And very uncomfortable. And leaving a, you know, my sister is quite a lot younger than me, but she must she wasn't, she was still a teen and, and leaving her with my newborn son, making, I mean, some of the stories she tells me now, bless her heart, um, you know, of, of the situations I put her in and, and leaving her with my son and running off and going off and scoring and thinking, oh, she's all right, she's with my, you know, he's got someone looking after him mm. and, and putting that on her, you know, with this newborn baby. And, you know, we talk about it really openly now, but I caused a lot of damage there as well, you know, putting my kids on other people a lot. Mm. So you're doing your, your bit of work was you, you did a lot of voluntary work. You went from the rehab working for us. You went somewhere else next, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I then went to work. I did a little bit of voluntary work, but I went to work for a company and sort of went to work in supported housing. like a part-time job, just a little job, mm. um, because my aim was to move closer to my kids. That's what I wanted. I'm going to get a house. You know, I want somewhere closer so I can see them because at this stage I was... Their nan, who had the guardianship, she was she was as good as gold, as good as gold. She would bring them over as much as she could and as much as I was allowed to see them. Um, and where I could, I would make the effort to get on the bus and and go over there and get them. Um, it was it. I made sure it was consistent and it, it was regular because that's what I was taught, um, you know, and not breaking commitments. So I was doing all of that. Um, how old yeah. was that? How old was that for you? Because again, you were pretty damaged person in the early recovery you've been for a hell of a lot and still probably suffering for some sort of emotional or mental disorders <laughs> just a bit <laughs> i mean so i mean uh, practically you're doing things but can you remember back how you know what was it like for you mentally and emotionally what was you going through through them periods it was really hard because i wanted to take control back of my children, I wanted to be the one in control. So I would be forever judging their nan for not doing things how I think they should be done. Um, at points I would really struggle because I couldn't tolerate them for long. Um, the children? Yeah, that's the truth. Just, I, just because I, you're, you're neural, you're, well, you're, so let's say your neural pathways, but really it's your um, nervous system yeah. was not functioning. No. For any higher capacity, so you can only take... I could only take so much before yeah. it was enough, and then I'd feel really bad because it was enough, and I would, you know, so it was, a, it was a, a constant battle with myself to try and do the right thing despite myself, mm. you know, despite how I felt and what I really wanted to do. It's like trying to do the right thing and trying to learn how to be a mum because 
I knew some of it from growing up and, and what I'd seen in my family, but I'd never been a proper mum because I was off my face. Yeah, so trying like, to learn or, how to be a, a mum. You were sort of a drug addict long before you were a mother, I guess. Uh, yeah, you? yeah, I was. So the kids all came into my addiction. Mm. So trying to do all of that, it was difficult, but I, I can say hand on my heart once I'd acknowledged and accepted the amends that had to be made you know and and speaking to you about it in the past in early recovery about it being ongoing and the deficit that I'd created and going above and beyond to to you know put that right anything I committed to I did stick to it of the above and beyond what you did what you were trying to do I I mean an example that springs to mind is I remember you saying this and I was like really I remember you saying about you know if you if you if your kids want to go to the park you know they've missed out going to the park many a time so you need to be going to the park and you need to be staying there a bit longer than they want to you know you were trying to say you need to put in more effort to put that right and I was like I hate parks (laughs) (laughs) but I got it you know I got it and um trying to think of another example of that yeah was this and I'll never forget this is that my daughter my eldest was 10 when I got into recovery and she really wanted to do gymnastics and so where I live to where sorry where I live now where the children are based to where I was staying was about 40 minutes on a bus and she wanted to do gymnastics and there was a really good club where I was staying in in supported housing so I got her enrolled there and I would go over to to where she lived, pick her up on the like bus over, bus her back, bus back again. And then their nan would give me a lift back mm. because I wanted her to do it. And she, it was really important to her to do it. So I made the effort to do those bus trips to get her to be able to do this gymnastics club because it's something she really wanted to do. Yeah. I started to realise that it, it couldn't be about me anymore. It had to be about them. It had always been about me, you know, in their little lives. It had always been my needs above them and it was time to put their needs before mine yeah and that sounds really hard yeah and, and again it's really damaging i think for kids because as you're saying that i just think of a lot of um guys over the years that you know they sort of telling you about how unhappy their um mother of their child is and then you start investigating why and you start realising these guys have got all like 20 pairs of trainers, best trousers, best tops, you know, like I don't even know the name of all the designer stuff with a label on the arm and, <clears throat> you know, you, you listen to enough people and you sort of realise, mate, even though, even though you're not drinking or taking drugs, you're still an incredibly selfish person and you, you're not acknowledging that damage that you've done and you're still doing it but you thinking like it says there we think the person that thinks just giving up drinking and drugs is enough is uncaring and so I sort of come up with this way of trying to show people I'd say look how many children you've got they're like two I say well imagine just shut your eyes a minute and I learned this um, from the NLP that shut your eyes a minute now imagine that you're holding your children one in each hand. Are you imagining that? And they're like, yeah, I can imagine that. I said, now look down and tell me who's got the best trainers on. Oh, do you know, it's like sticking a dagger in their heart. But it wakes them up. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And then they start making sure their children get the best. Yeah. 
like a proper parent. Yeah. But they get a lot of joy from that. And then they start realising, man, I never felt better. That... So he's like, by not doing that, you weren't even benefiting yourself. Mm. That you're unhappy. And that that's massive because what I'm able to do today, it brings me great joy knowing that I can provide for my kids. That's huge. And I've said it before that my girls, their dad died. So he's not around to support me. And my son doesn't see his dad very much. Um, and so I'm the front runner. There's just me. And, and I'm, I'm very blessed to have their nan who had the guardianship. She's wonderful with what she does. But ultimately, I get so much pleasure out of being able to provide what, what they need and some of what they want. You know, I've never been able to do that. I love that, that, you know, there's certain things I'd, I'd love to spend money on every month, quite a few things, and I don't. If there's anything spare, then I will, and I get really excited. But their needs come first, and I owe them that, and, and that's okay, you know? And and I'm I'm really proud of myself for getting to that place where I, I can do that. I think that's an that. amazing thing, isn't it? And I think that's the real spiritual turnaround, that when you realise that, and I think, again, that's kind of like what I've learned from the programme, is that that it's about the giving, like love is for giving, but you get a great reward by um, <coughs> caring and not being selfish. And I think that's probably the big problem that a lot of people have that can enter into recovery and thinking that drinking, giving up drinking drugs is enough. Because again, I still get a lot of people that have been in long-term recovery that call me, that get given my number. And because now their children are starting to become addicts, their children are starting to go down that path. And But when you even look at their recovery, it's like, yeah, but you've remained selfish through your recovery. You've not given them that other experience that I think is so important that they have another experience and especially when they're young so I think addiction does sort of transfer on the children but I think recovery does as well mm. and uh, so massively massively there's no doubt about that I think the the environment that my kids have you know I can't change the past I can't change anything about the past what they've been through the trauma that they've experienced because of the past I can't change that but I've worked so hard to change how they live now and to continue to do my best by them and and one of those things is the environments that they're in the people that they're around the recovery you know there's so much of the recovery world that is wonderful for everyday people you mm. know to live by those principles and to teach my kids to be kind and you know, to teach them not to be selfish and to teach them some of the things that I've learned and have them around people that do the same and have them around, you know, kids with the same sort of um, living in that recovery environment. I love it. I think it's a really healthy, it's upbeat, you know, we do our best to to deal with ourselves on a regular basis so that we stay upbeat and light and, and don't carry resentment. You know, all the things that we do in recovery, that it does transfer and also what I've learned to, is to everyone because I think even like you think is it Lynn is it the... yes kids so, nan so I remember like how angry you were at her even because it probably made you it made you realise the reality that you were in but I remember a lot of the conversations that you were just really selfish with her as well yeah terribly <laughs> terribly and again she had her struggles as well I mean, and, and her son died 
of addiction. Um, but she's went through a lot and, and the struggle that she had even trying to look after your children. She gave up her job to yeah. take care of my children, you know, and trying to manage her son in, in his addiction. And, you know, it, it's massive what she did. And she helped me save my life because without that, my son was supposed to be going into care. That was mm. the plan because he couldn't go to his dad's side um, because of his dad being around and he was a bit of a threat and still in his addiction. So Lynn was the only choice and the plan was for her to have my girls, but he was going to be going up for adoption. And at the last minute she said, I can't take him away from his siblings and I'll have him. And she stopped work. Mm. She gave up her whole life to do what she did, but it was like, she wants my kids. I'm not getting my kids. You know, for, for years I really struggled with her in the beginning. And like I said before about the way she was doing things wasn't the way I wanted them done. Yet I didn't really have a clue about being a parent, and you know, so... Mm. Yeah, she, she went through a lot. But you shifted towards her as well, I think, didn't you? And then tried supporting her and changing the way that you were thinking. Yeah. If I remember, and I think that I did. probably really helped her life as well. Mm, that was quite profound because I sat there after the, the telling myself she just wants my kids and she wants to keep my son and all the things that I was telling myself. And I really did struggle. And I sat there one day and we were talking about the plan for Jaden to come home because he was the last one. He's My son's my youngest and... The girls were with me and still on that, I just want my son back. And when she was speaking to me about it, she said, you know, and we're going to wait, we'll wait till he starts the junior school and we're going to do it like this because that's when you work and then you can... And everything that was coming out of her mouth was thinking about the best thing for me. Mm. And I just sat there and as she's talking, it was like one of those sort of experiences. I was like, this, I was like, wow, she actually does care about me and love me and want the best for me. And, she, and the way it was done with the children coming back was to make sure that I was stable enough to, to be the mum, you know, that they needed. And, and it was done staggered for that reason. But it took that long for when Jaden finally came home to see, she really does care about me. She's doing this for me. Yeah. It's funny how that ego that I just want even blocks out and almost abuses the people that are actually caring for you as well. You can't see it, though, can you? No. you? You can't see it till you see it, I think. It's... Yeah, it's true. And I think it would have probably taken a lot longer had I not stuck close to my programme and stuck close to the people that support me. Because yeah. forever along the way in the last, you know, nearly nine years, it's the people that have had those experiences, been through the same sort of thing and that are, you know, very grounded in their own lives in recovery that I stick close to and, and speak to because you're right. Sometimes I can't see it and I mm. need those people to point things out to me. I need to say it all the time, the healthy mirrors healthy mirrors because without them I really would be screwed because mm. I think it is that it's that moment in it like people used to say like you know uh, you know the um, the outcome that we're hoping for with people is taxpayers and the reason I like used to say that is because contributors it's that you get these people that become so you know like it says there it's like a tornado they become so exhausting of all your resources when you're in a relationship with an alcoholic or an addict <clears throat> because they're constantly taking and giving very little but when they turn around and their brain starts working again hopefully for a good recovery program they start actually contributing back to people's lives then you know like you quite rightly said even with your children that you start sewing back into their life you start putting their life important but but again it's like i like always like this is that love is forgiving 
And if you're really not giving, you're really not loving. And then if you're not giving and somebody's saying, you don't love me, and if you ever listen to what they're saying, it's because you're not giving me something. And, you know, I think, you know, that can definitely go into a into a wrong place where people become too giving because they want to be loved. But but it certainly is uh, an important thing that that this whole program becomes about that altruism is about what do I contribute to the world mm. and being able to see where you know that I do have a responsibility to people mm. other people and I think that's by just taking one step in front of the other following the natural processes I used to get told and just trying to do the right thing every day it's enabled me to be in a stable place within myself where I can give back to the kids. I can provide. I can be consistent. I can be their security. And that's what I've been able to give them. And I can give them that support. I can run my son round to, to live his dream of, you know, being a dancer and all the things that he does. Mm -hmm. You know, I can support my daughter into her chosen career and her dream. And I can, I'm there. And they know I'm, you know, they can rely on me. If I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I'm going to be there. Were they tough on you at the beginning, though, when they come back? Because I guess there's that, you, you get that where they, they really don't have much respect for you because they're hurt, aren't they, as well? Yeah. I think they're not stupid. They know that you've, you know, they're your mum and they love you, but they also know you let them down. And Yeah. And I think that's important as well, is in the beginning... Lots of people, I speak to people at work who want to rush their rush their recovery, let's say. So they want to get back and I just need to go back and be a mum and I just need to go back and be a wife. And they don't realise the importance of the recovery journey continuing and it, and it being the crux of everything else. So they'll put all of that before continuing on the recovery it's, path. Because for that reason, it, they're still trying to get something for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that in the early days, my kids hated it. Me going to meetings, me, you know, going and seeing my sponsor, me spending time with my recovery friends. And I, I would, like, include them where I could. But why have you got to do that? You just... Because they didn't understand. They didn't understand it. They're not meant to. But over time, I just had to continue to do that and say, look, mummy wants to stay. I want to, I'm getting better and I want to stay like this. And I've got to do it to make sure I stay better. And then they got used to it. And they're like, you need to get to a meeting. Yeah. Yeah, my eldest. <laughs> You know, you they, need to call your sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll pull. You know, they they'll pull me up because they know they know now what recovery is. They know what it means to me. They know what it means to their lives. And you know, but in the beginning, it was important that I had those boundaries where that has to come first. And to that, you know, if that hadn't come first, if I'd have come running out and everything's great now, I've done a stint in rehab, everything's fine. There's nothing else I need to do now. I'm ready to be a mum and a sister and a, you know, all, all the roles I play in my family and put the recovery on the back burner, I wouldn't be where I am today. Had to stay the most important thing in my life. How was their behaviour? Because, again, I guess it must have been quite... I mean, I guess it was nice that it was... What did, and I forgot the word to use, a sort of a process return when they come back. They didn't all staggered. just... Yeah, staggered, yeah, it's a staggered return. But I guess that was really good for you as well, to give you a chance to to evolve and grow some new pathways. Because, again, you'd, you'd never... Again, it's that crossing the bridge yeah. that that you didn't or wouldn't have. All of your parenting had been under the influence. 
So that parenting was all new for you, I guess, mm. weren't it? Because you'd never parented it clean and sober. So your brain probably was still quite struggling to be able to cope. Definitely. I, mean, I didn't realise how draining children were until <laughs> I looked after my nieces for the first time. And honestly, it was almost like somebody had pulled a plug out of me. They sucked the life out of you. you. <laughs> they sucked the life out of you. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They're, they're um, yeah, they're really, they are hard work. Being a mum's hard work. In the best of times. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, no getting away from that. But you just got to accept it's hard work, you know, and, and just do a day at a time. Sometimes I'm like, oh, please, I just want to go to bed. Just stop now. <laughs> Mom, I can't find this. Mom. You know, and it's, that's the, that noise, literally. I'm like, oh, that word again. Mom. I, I say, I'm going to change my name. And they're like, Kelly, Kelly. It's like, they're clever. Um, yeah, sorry, what was the question you asked me? It was just about that, really, is about... Oh, their behaviour. Did it get better for you? I mean, you know, was it very difficult at the beginning? Very difficult. I think what was difficult is they were kept together as a three. So, you know, Lynn wanted to keep my son with my, my girls so that the siblings were kept together. And so when they were returned to me, it created a bit of a divide and it became... It, it brought its own set of problems. So... But I knew it had to be done that way. My daughter was of an age where she decided she wanted to come home. And the social... By this time, I'd been stable enough in my recovery that the social workers did an assessment and said... I mean, it was the happiest day when she came back and they said I could keep her. I was just absolutely... I cried my eyes out. Mm. Um, But they said, yeah, absolutely. She's old enough to make that decision um, so she can come home. But that then obviously created a divide with the other two. My son was only young, so there's a lot of it he doesn't remember. Um, he was one when I got into recovery. So, but the two girls, that created a bit of a problem because my middle one thinks Taylor's always been my favourite. She's my eldest and, you know, it created its own set of problems, but I just had to plough on through it and just concentrate on one bit at a time. Um, and I just made an effort to see the other two and they came and stayed with me, but it just wasn't, they weren't living with me. So I just did my best with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again... I have to remember that they're three individual people, so they're all very different and they've all got different needs. So, you know, my relationship with Taylor is different to my relationship with Morgan. My relationship with Jaden is different to the one with the girls. There's lots of different dynamics, but I'm kind of, I'm aware of those dynamics and I manage them as best I can. Mm. But in the early part of recovery, it was hard because they were separated. And then in the middle of that, we had the death of the girl's dad and that that was really difficult, you know, to go through that, for them to go through that, for me to try and support them going through that. Um, so there's been a lot gone on with the dynamics of the, the kids, really, along the yeah. way. And how much of that would you say, I think I'm sort of going to promote the 12-step programme a little bit here, but taking out all of the the God bit and the Alcoholics Anonymous, because, again, it's like I was trying to say in that, that thing about, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, but I believe the the principles in this programme are universal. They don't really belong to any name. They're just the way that, um, the things that humans probably should do to create a healthy process to be able to deal with problems or underdevelopment to that. Being able to accurately assess what the situation is, to accept it, and then start devising strategies to grow from it. How much do you think that process that you learn to treat your addiction has helped benefit your life? It's and even like mothering your children, even? 
It's because of that process. There's no way of escaping it. Because had I just stopped using, I don't believe I would have managed to do it. But had I, let's say, you know, managed to just stop the drugs, I would have still been the person that I was, unable to deal with myself, my emotions, not understanding, trying to live, you know, these principles. Every person in this world should have those principles in their lives. Honesty, selflessness, you know, all the wonderful things about Well, if you're doing beings. good, you have, wouldn't you? Exactly. So why would you not want to follow that process and, and, and be striving to achieve those principles rather than being frightened of stuff, you know, being angry, being selfish? That would have been an awful way to parent my children. So I would say it's solely because of that process, you know, mm. that I am the way I am and solely because of the other people in that process who could hold me accountable and sometimes help me with things that I didn't recognise. Because mm. without them holding me up, the love, the support, you know, from those people through those difficulties and, you know, the selflessness of them, which is part of the programme, to, to help others, to, to be there for other people, to check in on people. That's a real friendship and a relationship because it's not about you anymore. You're, you know, so without those people doing that for me and also people that, I've experienced the parenting in recovery and have been before me and done certain things and, you know, had children grow up and sharing their experiences. No way I would have done it. Yeah, so when we talk about carrying the message to the next sufferer, that's kind of what we mean, isn't it? Just show people how to resolve their problems and and grow. So coming to an end is, is summing up your life with you in it about sort of how you are generally, uh, mostly mentally, how would you sort of sum up your life now and your your children and, and where... Because, again, uh, you're still in early recovery from my point mm, of view, So, yeah. but you've come a long way and there's a long, lot further to go, but where you're at at the moment, how would you sum up your existence? My existence today? Tiring. <laughs> <laughs> how, I'm just... It's that contentment, that peace of mind the majority of the time and getting the opportunity to sit and go back and see how far I've come. I'm excited about what's next because I'm I'm open to growing, developing and changing because I've achieved so much so far mm. that I'm quite excited by that. And looking at my children today and they do have their struggles. You know, my middle daughter's, my eldest daughter firstly is me and her are very close me and my middle one not so, not so much but I don't take that personally you know she's a 14 year old girl and she's been through a lot she's had a lot of trauma her dad was her you know the closest parent and she lost him you know me both of us in addiction losing their dad losing my mum so I I don't take it personally I accept it for what it is and I and I make an effort to try and build on that relationship and I sit there sometimes and I look and I think it's incredible what I've achieved from who I was before, you know, and I don't give myself enough credit. I'm my worst critic. But, you know, I look and think that my eldest living out her dream, her, it, I'm, my heart is bursting. You know, she was the, el- the older one that she was 10 when I got into recovery and had a really, you know, looking for needles when she was seven. Some of the things she went through to support her and, you know, through her journey of now becoming a police officer, it's just incredible. Well, even that story that you told us when you come in from her first day on duty, but even some of that um, terrible experience has also become a bit of a blessing. 
Absolutely. She, I feel like she's got a slight advantage from some because she has been exposed to some of the, you know, the, the darker side of the world, let's say. And she has had police around the house and drug raids and prison visits and all of that side of things. That so when she lots goes of kids... into a property with children, she knows what them children are. And that's what she did. She first, one of her first, you know, her first shift goes in and, and, and tries to distract the children because she, she gets it. And mm. so I think that's, it's turned into a blessing. Yeah. And as I say, I sit there today and, you know, my little boy's getting run around everywhere to go and dance. He's, he's danced most nights. And then some nights, oh, God, here we go again, you know, running him around to go and do his dance lessons and his audition. And, and he is absolutely loving his life, you know. And my daughter, despite her moods, um, she's got a stable home. She's got everything that she needs. You know, I'm on the phone to my, my eldest when she needs me. I, I'm available to my kids. So I, that is, it, it's massive. It really is. And I provide a stable home, the security, and you know, and the stability that they get. I, I, I just want to continue to work on that. And, and, and I'm excited to know what their journey holds. And I'm not naive to think that it's all going to be easy because it hasn't been so far. But that's all right, because I'll take it good and bad if I continue to do what I've done so far. Yeah. So, again, didn't think I'd be just promoting the programme, but I think, you know, when I talk to people like yourself... And I know it's not just this, it's a lot of support of people, it's other professional people, it's, you know, family, it's, you know, it's not really just one thing that helps anybody get clean and sober, but having this at the core, would you say that this is a, a programme designed for not drinking and taking drugs, or designed for living? Designed for living... Like I said, the opportunity to change and grow and understand myself and get rid of the bad bits and take some responsibility and gain some acceptance and all of that stuff. I, I probably wouldn't have got it all had I not done that. And, and you're right, it's, it's you know, my family's support and, and along the way they've been amazing. You know, there's lots of other bits and bobs added to that, but that's been the crux of it for me. Yeah, because do, do you find, again, like we've already probably said, but I want to labour it a little bit, because I think it's important because... <clears throat> one thing I've learned through, you know, understanding these processes is that I'm quite a problem person. I kind of really have a, had a lot of problems. I've still got a lot of problems. But I'm really good at helping solve problems, especially in other people, mm. because of what I've learned. And, and again, more than anything, I don't just want to solve their problems or help them solve their problems, which I do. I want to show them how they can help solve them for themselves so then they can learn that process because I think that most problems that we have is we're just not processing. We have no mechanism to process our problems and I think this is what this gives us. Mm. I, don't, I think in some people it's naturally there but other people like us, I don't think that's naturally in our brains that we just don't have any natural problem processing is why we get attracted to drugs and that because it gives us relief without processing totally and then they agree. just build up on you yeah and then when you come in the program it says look the reason that you're drinking and taking drugs is because you're not processing you've got a whole mountain of problems that need processing but that's a good thing because if we start on helping you process them problems then that should make you good at it and it should manually build this thing into your brain that you're missing and then as you go on in your life you'll learn how to process your problems and then you can help other people process their problems it, and if you teach people that process then you get to evolve and evolve yeah and grow and grow for the rest of your life so it says we have a, a program that 
is designed for living because it can help meet every problem. It hasn't got the answer to every problem, but it's got the process that you can apply to every problem. And then naturally you will evolve and, and become wiser. And, mm. and and it's given me the ability to not take my problems out on other people, to do my best to be a nice human being. You know, not all the time. No, no one's perfect. Except, except men. To, so what? Except men. What about men? You take your problem out on them. <laughs> yeah, I'm a woman. That's allowed, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's given me the ability to try and go through that. There's always problems. Everyone in life has problems. Like you say, we don't deal with them very well and they build up. Yeah. My life's become a lot simpler, but there are problems. And I'm expecting more problems because that is life, but it's given me the ability to deal with it along the way. It's a simpler yeah. way, to, you know, they don't build up anymore. Because I've been joking about that, but relationships are very hard, aren't they? Really hard. And... and you know, it's like, it's kind of, I think, it's something, especially that kind of relationship, that having another, uh, the other, the other person, you know, I, I was going to say the other half, but I don't like that saying, because it's, it's the other whole. <laughs> it should have two whole people in a relationship, not two halves, that only makes one. But, it's, uh, um, again, I think that's, for some people, that's the biggest frontier to face, is getting in a loving relationship with, um, with a partner. And um, how, how have you sort of found that over the the journey? How do you find that? I think it's learning to go from being a completely selfish individual to a selfless one in a relationship. And I think that I'm still on that journey. And I think that definitely is, I've spoken about it before, about, you know, my journey with relationships has never been very successful. Mm. But I feel I'm at a place where I'm the best I've ever been to try and give that a go at some point if the right opportunity comes along. I think that... So I think that's quite common. It's, it's uncomfortable. I even felt a bit uncomfortable asking you that, really. But I think it's just important because I think that for so many people, that's a real big problem because there's so much sort of hurt and difficulty and the people that they generally attract mm. are not always able to, to build a relationship because just talking to someone last night and saying relationships take building, like, like and, and it can be a very difficult um, process um, and, and, and a lot of the times I think we're all often trying to build a relationship with other people that are just not capable. No, and I think it's so important to know your worth and I don't think you can in early recovery. I don't think you do know your worth. You haven't really got a lot. You know, you've got to build that and you've got to do, you know, the esteemable things and, you know, start to sit to go through the process to get rid of the bad, if that makes sense, and start to know, to recognise your worth, your good bits and, and accept your bad and you know, to build that self-worth because you can't, if you're trying to look for somebody to, you know, give you that, it's never going to work and you can't... How do you you'll, feel you'll that? Settle. How do you feel then? Because we, we was trying to do some shorts before this, um, or we were waiting for you, but it turns out shorts are not, not my forte. I don't know any short. <laughs> can't do short. You don't do short. I can't do short <laughs> stories. <laughs> <clears throat> but I was trying to express, and so how do you end up feeling in relationships, do you think? What would be a word that you'd use? I'm just sort of wondering if it sort of matches kind of what I've kind of feel like I've learned about, you know, that, that what, you know, there's, 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 you, you can meet someone and, 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 and really have a, they think they're fantastic, but in a short period of time, that, that feeling starts to get overtaken by not such a good feeling. Mm. 
but what what for you what would you say that that feeling would have been in the past what the not not such a good yeah. feeling well because i think that it's really easy to settle so you settle for less than what you're worth so, so you're willing just to just got to stop you there because again this is kind of what we were talking about right and i think you're bang on see because what i feel that i've kind of listen to with people and in myself is that word disappointment and I think again I was trying to say that really that disappointment sort of I think often starts in your mum and dad's marriage that they become disappointed with each other they're disappointed in the marriage that disappointment often often then goes on to the child and when you feel disappointed about somebody's behaviour or something that you've got or you know, what you're getting, you know, natural, without anybody telling you, it seems to me, again, this is just a theory that I have, it seems to me that one, the way a person would deal with that disappointment is to lower their expectation. And, and even, I think, that even in recovery, and I think this is a terrible thing to say for every situation, that they say... I say, I'm really unhappy with the way they're treating me. And they say, well, maybe you need to lower your expectation. And they even used to have this, um, they say, look, there's this barometer. It's like that, and that your expectations are in direct proportion to your serenity. So if you've got high expectations, you've got low serenity. If you've got low expectations, you've got high serenity. And it sounds good. I just think that's disastrous in every case because... Because I think it's exactly that. That if you keep lowering your expectations, you'll de start devaluing yourself. Mm, massively. And then you're willing to... Because ex some expectations, it's like, no, that's a reasonable level of expectation. And it's important to understand that it's reasonable for me to expect that you don't cheat on me, steal from me, to abuse that. me, be, yeah. you know, be abusive towards me. You know, there's a there's there's a reasonable level of expectation, but I find the people that have been disappointed lower their expectations yeah. and are willing to accept way below average treatment, and they tend to choose them. Choose, and then repeat the pattern. Well, because then you just continue to yeah. be devalued. I'm not doing that again. No. I'm not doing that again. I'm all right. I've, I'm all right on my own, and. I'm not going to put myself in those situations. And I have to take into consideration, again, in that area, for people that have got kids, you're bringing your kids along with you in that, in that relationship. Yeah, they, you know? well, they're devalued as well. Exactly. So I'm not... And, well, they're and, going to be disappointed. Yeah. You're going to disappoint them. Yeah. And that's I'm, the worst thing for a kid, no. isn't it? My dad said he's going to turn up at the train station and he doesn't turn up. Mm. I mean, the amount of disappointment, that's such a damaging, you're not worth it. You have no value. Yeah. And that leads to, I think, to people condemning themselves, Massive. like you said, where they don't feel worthwhile. Yeah. And so disappointment is disastrous for humans. Yeah. And again, there is unreasonable expectations that can cause disappointment, and you should look at them. But, but I do think that what I've noticed is a lot of people in addiction, they devalue themselves because they've been so disappointed that they... And they have such a low view of themselves that they're willing to accept being treated badly. And then they get in relationships with people that can't give them value. 
And I think as well, yeah, that's massive. And, and it brings a whole another area of carnage. But I think it takes a long time to realise what is a healthy relationship. You've got no idea, most addicts. Yeah. So you've got to learn and you can... Well, I don't know whether you could be in one. Because I find if, if you're in a in healthy relationship in that space, <laughs> then you probably would also feel less than... Mm. I think this is why yeah. we seek out a bit of a lower one. I think that's right. I think there's a yeah. lot in that yeah. that you're gonna, you're you know, not like normal. Like we say that when you sort of that dysfunction becomes normal or normalised, then changing what is normal be, feels very uncomfortable. Mm. And I think that's quite a difficult bridge for people to cross because again, none of us want to be lonely. No, and just get a dog. I think so. <laughs> well, they used to say in America, didn't they? First, get a plant. If you can keep that alive for a year, then get an animal. If you can yeah. keep that alive yeah. for three years, I get it. Then have a relationship. I get it. I think that's, there's something in that. Yeah. There's something in that. Well, I never had children, but even when you're talking about your kids, I was even thinking my little dog. In the last little while, apparently it's my fault. He used to sleep on the end of the bed in his blanket. But now he started, where's Pauline's put a blanket on the bed for winter, she folds it over and he heads up the bed in the night, he wants to get inside that fold. And so he wakes me up pretty much every night trying to dig into this fold. <laughs> and I wake up and then I'm like, oh, I love him. And I pulled a blanket over him. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I'm in the I'm the same with my dog. She's my world next to the kids. She's yeah. part of the family. But yeah, get a pet. But no, I I think it takes a long time to 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 learn. There's a lot to learn about healthy re- relationships with people like yeah. us. And, and the I longer think society, you can give it, the better. Sorry, sorry okay, yeah. In society, I think, and again, it's why I wanted to do more podcasts along this kind of line about what comes after recovery. Because I think as a society. I think we really fall short on helping people learn that stuff. I think we sort of, it gets left to each individual. And I think, you know, my estimation is, is that, look, we need counsellors, but I think what we need more than counsellors is personal developers, you know, life coaches, people, good sponsorship, people that can help you develop them develop them skills because again in my mind I used to draw this um, like a tower like a, a tower block on a on the whiteboard and I'd put a little line at the bottom and write two percent and then above I'd write 98 percent and I'd say look that two percent at the bottom is your recovery but you're spending 98 percent of your time on your recovery and 2% of your time on the 98%, which is the rest of your life. But I honestly believe there's a 98% hole in the market for personal development. Mm, I totally agree. And I think that's, to me, that's become the more wonderful part of recovery, which is kind of why I'm not unhappy about the rehab closing down and going online, because I want to get more into development, because addiction treatment's a lot easier now than it used to be. Mm. But the development, I just don't see that happen to any real degree. And, you know, it seems a shame to me that, that you can live your life. Very simple things just need to change about your life that can make massive, 
massive differences and in families that you know children can carry, continue continue to be damaged um, even though somebody stopped drinking and stopped taking drugs it's because like, they're not parenting their children mm. properly because they don't know how. No, exactly. They don't even know they're not doing it, but they're not getting the pleasure from it, which is, you know, what you said, you get the pleasure from it. Yeah, most days. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's being a mum. You well, know, I, I think I ain't got children, <laughs> but when I look at it, it seems that probably 90% of being a parent's hard work and probably unbearable to a degree but that 10 percent is makes it all worth it incredible makes it all it worth it, it yeah, yeah. yeah it's tiring it's hard work it's emotional but it, it's 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 so worth it so, and like you say about personal develop development it's like you know literally life after drugs yeah. how to do it and i will just finish <laughs> on this is how much of that knowledge and wisdom that you've gained in your recovery do you think now that you get to pass on to other people how often does that come up in your conversations all the time I think you know I, I sponsor I've got two girls that I sponsor at the minute um and and share some of the, the information experience that's been given to me um and you know I, I work in in the field of addiction so I get to speak to so many people sort of and day, absolutely and I had a lovely conversation with a girl yesterday who's started to do some you know recovery stuff out there and just a few simple words and she's like oh now you put it like that sometimes people just need a little nudge like you say small things sometimes to so so I get to do it every day and I love that some people are ready to hear it some people aren't but if I can help just one person like somebody you know someone did for me then I'm winning yeah well I think that I bring this podcast to an end I don't know how long we'll be talking for but it seems like quite a while and Thank you very much for coming along again. You're welcome. It's just fantastic and it really gives a good view of recovery and the importance of, of, of what happens after sobriety. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. God bless everybody.